Good morning. My name is Steve Welsh, one of the elders serving here at Redeemer, and I have the privilege of reading the Word of God this morning on which uh, Simon is going to preach. It's uh, Ruth chapter 2. Obviously, you can find it in your Bibles at home. Uh, You can find it in the bulletin, and you can find it on the screen uh, up to my right here. So if you would, out of honor of the Word of God and is our tradition here at Redeemer, please stand with me if you are able for the reading of Ruth chapter 2 in its entirety. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, who was named Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to the young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. He said, or she said, Please let me gleam and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping, and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing down to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly of your servant, though I am not of one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some of the bustles from her, and leave them on the ground for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley, and it took it up into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out, uh, brought out and gave her the food that she had left over from being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today, and where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she took her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. 
And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi said to her, This man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out uh, with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaming until the end of the barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Thus be the reading of God's word. You may be seated. If you would, pray with me. Um, Jesus, I do pray that you would abide with us today um, in your spirit and through your word. And Lord, that you would bring comfort um, to those who need it, that you'd bring hope to those who feel hopeless. God, that you would even bring life to the dead. Um, Lord, guide us through this text. Guide us um, in your good providence as a great and kind shepherd. And Lord, lead us in your way. In your name we pray. Amen. So there's a writer and a thinker from Kentucky named Wendell Berry, and he's known in a lot of ways for a lot of his uh, nonfiction and essays and writing a lot on community and the environment and all kinds of things. Uh, but he also is pretty well known for a fiction book that he wrote a few years ago called Jaber Crow. And in it, he tells the story of this barber who moves back to this small rural town in Kentucky, and he works there his whole life and just gets to know these people and be deeply invested in their lives. And the story is told from his perspective as being a, of being a very, very old man who's looking back on his life and living almost as much in his memory as he does in the present world. And he, as he reflects, he says this about himself. He says, now I've had most of the life that I'm going to have. And I can see what it has been. I can remember those early years when it seems I was completely adrift and times when, looking back at earlier times, it seemed that I had been wandering in the dark woods of error. But now it looks to me as though I was following a path that was laid out for me, unbroken and maybe even as straight as possible, from one end to the other. And I have this feeling, which never leaves me anymore, that I have been led." What Barry is talking about there, there through the mouthpiece of that character is the reality that the book of Ruth is pointing us to, which is this, is that if God knows everything and is in control of everything, then practically that means that he's leading us through life and through our circumstances, and he's using those circumstances to shape us and is using us to shape the way that he's going to work redemptively in the world. And the book of Ruth is essentially about how God is at work all the time in the lives of his people, even when they don't expect it. And you can look at the situation in your life right now, and you can be mad about that. You can be confused about that. You can even be skeptical about, you know, how is God leading me or guiding me now? But we've all at some point either said this or heard someone say it and kind of nod our head along to it, that everything happens for a reason. And we've kind of nodded along with that, or maybe even said that ourselves. Everything happens for a reason. What's the reason? What I want to suggest to you this morning is that we would look at this and we would see that God is at work in our lives even when we don't expect it. 
And he's using the things that you would never anticipate or never even maybe want in your life to shape your character and to shape who you are and through you and through that shaping to bless the world. So this morning, I want to look at this and I want to talk about the, our context in Providence. I want to talk about our character in Providence. And I want to talk about our consequences in Providence. Our character, our context, character, and consequences in Providence. So one, what's our context in Providence? Well, we touched on this last week, but you know, Ruth and Naomi and Boaz, they don't know that they're Bible people when this is going on. Right? Like they don't have a sense that, oh, I'm in this story in the Bible and it's like four chapters long and God's working my life in this way. They don't know any of that stuff. They have no idea what's coming, no idea what's significant, no idea of who's significant. Everything to them feels like chance. They can't see what God is doing, but we as readers are given these details about what's going on so we can get a sense of what God is doing. For instance, if you look at verse 4 here, it says, Behold, Boaz. It's like when music plays at some important part of a movie, like da-da-da-da, Boaz. And he comes on the scene. He comes on the scene because in chapter 1, Naomi prayed for her daughter-in-law that God would be kind to her and give her rest. How was God answering that prayer? Through Boaz. It's Boaz! But Ruth doesn't know that this is the answer to that prayer for her. To her, it just, I'm just meeting this guy in a field. God's guidance here really stands out too if you look in verse 3, where it says, what happened to her, what happened to happen to her. The Hebrew literally there says, the happenstance that happened to her was, and it goes out of its way to put its finger on just the sense from Ruth that this feels so random. It just seems like this is a happenstance. This just happens to be going on. Like out of all the fields in Israel, she happens to work in this one. And as she happens to work in it, she happens to meet Boaz, this very kind, very godly man who happens to have heard about the ways that she's cared for his dead relative's wife. It's like a scene in a romantic comedy where like, it happens to be raining and the guy jumps into one end of the cab and the girl jumps in the other end of the cab and they happen to shout out the same place where they're going to the cab driver at the same time and they look into each other's eyes and they smile and you know what's going to happen from then on, don't you? Like nothing that's happening here is random, even though it feels like happenstance to these people at this time. And so it is with our lives as well, that things that feel unpredictable to us are so certain to God. I mean, Jesus himself makes this point when he's teaching people who are anxious about the future, if only that were relevant right now, when he says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. That the least things in our lives, the numbers of hair that we have on our head and when those things happen to fall, those things are part of God's work in our lives. And to you and me, it feels like we're alone. It feels like we're making decisions on our own. We're going about our day and it all feels like chance or it's random or it's a happenstance. But the real reality is that nothing is a happenstance. Nothing is forgotten or without value in the lives of God's people. That all of it matters to God. Like what you eat for breakfast, where you shop for groceries, those are part of God's authorship of your life. Okay, well then, what's our part in it? You're saying that God's in charge of everything? I don't feel like I'm like a puppet on a string, like he's making me do this with my hand. 
think about it like this. This is a, a mystery with a capital M, but think about it like this. That imagine there's this spectrum right here. And on one end is here and another end is here. And this end of the spectrum is like God is totally, totally just a puppet master and we are robots and everything that I think and feel and do, that is just God putting his hand inside of me and just making me do it. That is not what the Bible is saying. I mean, there, the Bible talks about a real judgment where we get judged for our thoughts and our intentions and our actions. And God isn't going to judge puppets. He's going to judge real people. That's not what the Bible is saying. On the other end, though, is, you know, maybe God is totally taking his hands off the wheel and he's not in charge of everything and it's all up to us and we're doing our own thing. God is, it, the Bible is also not saying that. The reality is that somewhere in between those things are meeting and the Bible doesn't tell us where or how. And really the answer is probably too big and too complicated for us to really understand. And so God doesn't even try to tell us. It's mysterious, and we don't like it, but there are a lot of things that are really mysterious about the world. Like if you've ever taken a high school physics class, you know that light acts like both a wave and a particle, and it does so at the same time. How does it do that at the same time? We don't understand. It's mysterious, but we turn on the lights all the time. And you walk around in light, and you see light all the time, and yet it's all around you, and we don't understand it. It's so mysterious. But doesn't that make providence and God's guidance of all things even more compelling? That if you start to look at just the fundamental nature of reality, and it looks like these two things are happening at the same time that seem to contradict, but actually they work together, and that's going on around you all the time, then any religion or any you know, holy scripture that doesn't have something like that in it, when the rest of the world has that in it, probably isn't real. And the real reality is that things are just way weirder and more mysterious than anything we could cook up on our own. And that's just the context of our lives and how God is at work in our lives. Okay, well then where does that leave us? The character of providence and who we are. That's where it leaves us. Look at Ruth here. She is this hardworking faithful, providing for those around her woman. I mean, she's persistently working throughout all the day, all evening. She gets there early in the morning. She works till late at night. She processes the barley that she gleans. She takes this sack back with her of the barley. It says an ephah. An ephah is about 30 pounds. So she walks this sack of 30 pounds back to town to her mother-in-law. She's this woman of incredible just character, and then she meets Boaz, who's this man of incredible character, too. I mean, he's the means by which God is going to bless Ruth and Naomi. And just as Ruth is this hardworking, uh, humble, respectful woman, so is Boaz. I mean, at this time of just spiritual low point for Israel, when everyone is doing what's right in their own eyes, Boaz is counterculturally faithful. I mean, the questions that he asks his kind of servant guy there uh, about Ruth is like, what family does she belong to? It's, it's really kind of a Southern question. Like, who are her people? He's essentially asking, okay, I see this poor, vulnerable woman who's gleaning my fields. Who's supposed to be providing for her? Who's supposed to be protecting her? Oh, no one? Oh, well, I'll step up and do it. I mean, these two people are perfect for each other. It's this divinely ordained romance. And the funny thing is that neither one of them are aware of it. I mean, Boaz is just being Boaz. He's going to take care of somebody like Ruth. 
Ruth is just being Ruth. She's going to work hard and provide for her mother-in-law. At the end of the book of Ruth, it tells you, I mean, spoiler here, that she and Boaz get married, and they have a son who has a son who has a son whose name is King David. Who is King David the ancestor of? Jesus. Like these two people are Jesus's ancestors, which means that you are live streaming this church service today because 3,000 years ago, a guy was kind to a woman in a field when he had just met her. To them in this moment, none of this seems extraordinary. For Ruth, she's going through this very hard time. Her story starts in tragedy. And yet in God's providence, nothing is left out. It's like God is taking this thread from their lives and weaving it through history, through continents, through people's lives, through the millennia, into your and my life now because of the character of these people. Ruth is this amazing woman. Boaz is this incredible man. Together, God is working out through their character his good purposes in history and it's amazing because it's still impacting your life and the lives of the people that are coming come after you. Look, right now, uh, none of us can go to the gym. And I'm not a runner. Uh, I, I hate running on my own. And so I've taken to doing these 45-minute boot camp-style YouTube videos at home on our back patio. And they are just full of just cheesy workout slogans like, hustle for the muscle, or sweat as your fat crying, which if that is true, like my fat is weeping as I'm doing this stuff. And one of the things they say this actually is helpful is that failure is the goal. Like they said over and over again, failure is the goal. That you're really not getting the most out of your workout unless you're getting to the point of failure where you just can't do anymore. And that is so helpful for us as we also think about our present time. That we are in this large-scale season of really feeling our weakness and feeling our inability. I mean, you feel that when you leave your house. And you've got to wear a face mask. You need to wipe down everything. You've got to stay six feet from everybody. We feel our weakness and normally feeling like we're pretty reasonable, nice people. And then we're cooped up with our families and we get on each other's nerves. And suddenly you're fighting more than you've ever fought before. You feel your weakness and your boredom. You feel your weakness and your loneliness. We feel our weakness and there's so much going on in the world and we can't be a part of it then, in fact, in order to help, we actually have to stay home and do nothing. And that feels weak. And our temptation in this time is to say that weakness is the place where God cannot be at work. That weakness is the place to be avoided. But the reality that the book of Ruth and the rest of the Bible are screaming at us is that it's in our weakness that God's powers must clearly revealed. That it's through weakness that God strengthens his people and works this kind of character into them and that through them he blesses the world. And the whole point of the book of Ruth has been this one long close-up of how God did that for this particular family, this particular time and place. That's her story, but it says also something of the story of God's people. That if you're feeling your weakness right now, then you're doing it right. That it means that God might be at work in your life in a particular way. So let me ask you something, and I'm going to be pretty direct on this. That what if part of the thread of God's work in your life during this pandemic is for you, 
in your own life and your experience to more deeply understand your weakness and your care that you receive from God in that weakness so that one day you could care for other weak and needy people and love them in the way that God is loving you right now? Is it sad that things you'd hoped for in this season have fallen apart and the legitimate needs of your heart are not being met? Yes. And the Lord Jesus takes no pleasure in that or any other part of this whole broken thing. But what if at the same time God is doing that? That he's helping you feel your weakness and helping you to understand more of your need of him and to more deeply believe that he's a faithful and good redeemer? That when everything falls away and everything fails and we feel like we're only, I mean, really just beginning to reckon with all the things that we're going to lose out on because of this, that God's work in our lives is to help us see that Jesus is still faithful and to work the reality of that into our hearts and our characters and our lives and that through that he'll bless the world. I mean, look at verse 20 here where Ruth turns to Naomi and her ears perk up and she hears that, you know, Naomi, or that Ruth met Boaz. Boaz, Boaz is one of our redeemers. This seems so weird to us, but remember these people don't have the same sort of social net that we do. They rely on family for everything. That Boaz's job in this is that because he's related to them, he's going to try to save them from sort of difficult family circumstances. Which for Ruth and Naomi is to marry Ruth, to keep the land of the family, to perpetuate the, the family line. And as we see that, one of the things that is going to be amazing to this is that Boaz may actually have had some familiarity with the sense of weakness that these women had as they're going through this. That his genealogy is something we probably normally skip over. I mean, man, when you read these genealogies of the Bible, we normally just skip over the he begats and he begats. But Boaz's genealogy has his grandmother in it. See, his grandmother was Rahab, this Canaanite prostitute. And she helped Israel enter the promised land, and she eventually became part of God's people. But that probably wasn't easy for a foreign woman to come into God's people. And because of this, Boaz may have had some understanding of what it was like for a foreign woman like Ruth to come into God's people, that it would not be easy for her. And he understands her weakness and her need, and he's going to redeem her from that. And so he graces her because he understands his own need of grace, that that is the way of God's people. And years later, when Jesus, this descendant of Ruth and Boaz, shows up, he's going to really show us what it means to have a redeemer. That we were captive to sin, and Jesus redeems us from the slavery to sin, so that we would have the freedom of God's children. Which means that if you feel poor in spirit, he's going to redeem you from all of your poverty. That when he redeems you, he gives you everything that he has, the character of his life, and one day an inheritance in his kingdom. And that part of God's work in our lives through times like this is that we would actually see and experience our weakness so that we'd see and experience our need for him and his faithfulness in this. Whether that is for the first time or the 10,000th time. That the more that we understand our need of him and his radical love for us and our weakness, the more we're able to care for others with a radical Jesus-shaped love. That until you understand that we're all like Ruth, showing up destitute before the Lord, then you'll never be able to turn around and care for other people like Boaz. For all the people in our lives that are like Ruth. 
Look, the reality of the Christian life is that if you get the gospel, then you will give the gospel. And so much of God's work in our lives during times like these is that we would really get the gospel so that we would be able to turn around and really give it. And that matters not just for us and our immediate experience, but for those generations of God's people who are yet unborn, but whose stories are so deeply impacted by our character and our lives right now that God is willing to work hard things into it so we would know him, trust him, and care for those in our lives. And so I want to end with this. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson uh, tells a story about how he was on a trip to South Africa, and he goes to one of the De Beers diamond mines there. And he's going on this tour of this diamond mine, and so they get like the hard hat, and they get in the elevator, and they've got the lamps, and it goes down, 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 just through layer after layer after layer of earth. And they get out and they walk this long tour where like there's miners everywhere and there's pickaxes and drills and there's explosions in the distance. And it's amazing. And at the end of it, they get to actually hold in their hands these rough cut diamonds, not polished like what's on, the, on a ring, but just the rough stone. And the manager who's taking them on this tour says, you know, every day we blast away 16,000 tons of rock. And we bring up every day just a couple of handfuls of diamonds. But at the end of the day, it's worth it. It's worth it. And beloved, God does the same thing in our lives. He enters in and he just blasts through things. He takes us through hard experiences. But it's not for nothing. It's to bring out the rich treasures of the gospel into our lives, into our hearts, into our character and to give those treasures to the world. That's our hope to you and our offer to you today in the gospel, to know that God and to see him at work in your life in that way. Amen. Let me pray for us. Jesus, I pray that you would help us to trust you and see that you're at work through very hard things in our lives. God, through our boredom, through our loneliness, through our disappointment, through our underemployment or our unemployment, God, through our fear and anxiety, God, you're at work. Lord, help us to see that, to believe that, to trust you. And Lord, to take our experience of weakness. And Lord, to live in that and offer to people the only thing that we really have to offer, which is you and the great treasure of your gospel. In your name we pray, amen.